Hello, my name is Mishi Iman, and you're listening to True Crime Aficionados. Episode 7, it's all guesswork. <laughs> oh man, the case is heating up. Dr. Keppel is doing his fucking best. Liz is calling the police 7,000 million times. Ted Bundy is loose in Utah, fucking YOLOing, going off. It's a mess, guys. It's a wild ride from start to finish, as it always is. Trigger warning for gratuitous violence, sexual assault, necrophilia. Ted Bundy is a piece of shit. Thank fuck he's dead. All right, guys, buckle up and let's get into it. Five days after Ted Bundy left for Utah, the bodies of Denise Naslin, Janice Ott, and a third set of unidentified remains were discovered lying on a hillside just east of Issaquah, in apparently an area so secluded it was just ideal for disposing of bodies. Kevin Sullivan writes, Had their remains not been placed so close to the road, they might have gone undiscovered for years, and possibly forever. 36-year-old Elsie Hammonds and his neighbor, 71-year-old Elza Rankin, were out grouse hunting. They're kind of like pheasants, but not, but they were out grouse hunting. <laughs> and Hammonds said, I was just walking through the brush on the overgrown road, and the skeleton was just right there on the ground. The skull was detached nearby without any hair. So Hammonds is like, what the fuck? And he runs back to where his hunting buddy is, the 71-year-old, and he finds him talking to a couple of teenagers who had come to that area to do some target shooting, just people out shooting things in the woods, but okay. And Hammonds screams that he just found a fucking skeleton. One of the boys, some little 19-year-old turd monster named Jeffrey, whoever, let out a chuckle and said, it was only an animal. Hammonds is like, no child, shut up. I know what I saw. Come and take a look for yourselves. So fuck preserving a crime scene. They go back to the vicinity of where the skeleton was. And within moments, they spotted something that Hammonds had originally missed. He said, we found a clump of long black hair. It looked fresh and shiny, about two feet long. This hair belonged to Denise Nasland. So of course they call the police who were like, oh shit, all hands on deck. We got some fucking bones. And several police agencies were sent to the crime scene because there's nothing like a little chaos to help you sort through a graveyard. And the officers, they swarmed the surrounding hillside and they quickly established a security line to keep the news reporters and the photographers and the looky-loos and some nosy ass people. Because again, no one has ever heard of preserving a crime scene. Like these news reporters were fully about to storm the hillside and start taking pictures of dead bodies because that's what the public wants to see. When Eleanor Rose, Denise Naslin's mother, heard the news on the radio about the discovery of these remains, she rushed to the crime scene and at the bottom of the hill, an officer had to restrain her. And she said, but I'm Denise's mother. I have to know if it's Denise up there. Sorry, ma'am, the officer said. You'll have to just wait here. Eleanor said, mm-hmm, and then slipped around the restraining line and began to climb the mountain. She reaches up and then higher up the hillside, another officer who was, you know, securing the perimeter stopped her and was like, hey, you can't proceed anymore. And he told her that a skull had been found, but he assured her with no fucking medical license to back his statement that it looked to be about the age of a 14 year old. It can't be your daughter. 
Eleanor did not take him at his word, and so she went back down the mountain to wait officially for word. But somehow down there, another jackass, again, a person without any qualifications to make the statement, that the skull they discovered with the long black hair had no dental work done to the upper teeth, which meant it couldn't have belonged to Denise. Again, this person is not qualified to make the statement. Eleanor smiled and cried to the news reporter saying, I'm so very glad, I'm so relieved. Okay, so this excerpt I'm gonna read is a first person recount of finding this crime scene and processing this crime scene from Dr. Robert Keppel in his book, The River Man, Ted Bundy and I Hunt for the Green River Killer. It is crazy. Please go buy this book. Please go read this book. Support this man. He did that. He literally did that. Like that's all I can say. So Dr. Keppel writes, it had been hot all day in Seattle on September 7th, 1974. Roger Dunn, my partner in the homicide unit of the King County Police Department, and I were talking about the upcoming operation on my knee, which I had blown out playing recreation league basketball. We were returning from Tacoma after loading railroad ties for landscaping we both needed around our homes. The loose cartilage in my knee joint was actually on fire after all that heavy lifting that morning. Just barely audible over the rasping of Roger's ancient car, a report on the police radio came in. King County Police are investigating the discovery of skeletal remains just east of Issaquah. We looked at each other without saying a word and knew we were thinking the same thing. Could this be it? The end of an intense investigation into the disappearances of Janice Ott and Denise Naslin? Lake Sam was one mile from where the bones had been discovered. We spotted a phone booth. (laughs) A phone booth. We spotted a phone booth and pulled off to make a call to the squat room. It was four o'clock in the afternoon and our sergeant related for just me to respond to the call. My partner would be off the hook, at least for that afternoon. We pulled the truck up to my place and unloaded the ties. By the time we were done, I was reeking of creosote and slimy with sweat, but I had to get to where the bones had been discovered as soon as possible. This was the first break in a missing woman's case that had been tearing up the Seattle and King County area and making the police look like fools for months. I jumped into my unmarked car, slammed into gear and backed out, only stopping for a loud snapping sound that came from under the rear wheel. I opened the door and looked out. I had just demolished my son's David plastic Hot Wheels car and my left rear tire blew out. I changed the tire and was on my way. By the time I neared the crime scene, I was smelling like a ripe hobo. As I walked up the dirt road and across the railroad tracks, I was stunned when I saw Sergeant Lynn Randall, who told me straight out that the skeleton they found was not the remains of victims Janice Ott or Denise Naslin. I was more than a bit annoyed and started wondering why I had been called to the crime scene in the first place. So he was annoyed because he was assigned to search for Denise Naslin and Janice Ott. And he was like, okay, why the fuck did you call me here? If you're just telling me flat out that these remains don't belong to these two women, like, why am I here? So he continues. Then I discovered that Lieutenant Dick Krask had just told the press and Denise Naslin's mother that Denise's remains had not been found. I wondered how he was able to come to this conclusion so quickly. He wasn't an expert in dental identification, nor had he studied the dental charts as I had. No clothing, wallets, or jewelry, items commonly used for preliminary identification, had been found on site. I quickly surmised that he really didn't know anything for sure, and I was suddenly depressed and wearied by the realization that he had released a statement to the press that hadn't been confirmed by a forensic report. On top of it all, my knee was exploding with pain, and every step over this terrain only made it worse. 
So Dr. Keppel was ordered by his Sergeant Randall to return the next day with Explorer Search and Rescue to search the area for any additional bones. And Dr. Keppel considered this pickup work. And as the rookie agent, he was given a shit detail by senior investigators. And please remember that this double homicide, this double murder committed by Ted Bundy, a fucking serial killer, is his first ever homicide case. Welcome to the force. Like granted, Dr. Keppel is amazing. He did a fucking fantastic job. And like, he's part of the reason why, you know, we are where we are in terms of search and rescue and how to identify remains and all these things. But like, why would they not give a case this difficult to someone with a little bit more senior experience? It's like, do you not care about these victims? Of course, not saying Dr. Keppel couldn't do his job because he obviously did and he did it damn well. Anyway, so Dr. Keppel says, even my colleague, Detective Rolf Grunden, spelled G-R-U-N-D-E-N, he is calling these bitches out. Even my colleague chuckled and commented with a snobbishly superior attitude that I probably wouldn't find anything. He said they had already searched the hillside and found nothing but bones. So Dr. Keppel was shown the area with those two grouse hunters and that snot-nosed teenager found the skeletal remains. And about 50 feet west of the dirt road was a human skull. The entire hillside was covered in nettles and blackberry bushes and intertwined with thick grass and ferns. About 30 feet down the hill from the skull, they found a backbone with ribs that had been chewed on by animals. It was obvious to Detective Keppel that that bum bitch Detective Grunden had only searched the areas where a human could walk and had not conducted a thorough search of the area. During this basic ass walkthrough that Grunden, you know, probably begrudgingly did, his team found a mass of black hair that had been hidden under leaves about 15 feet midway between the locations of the skull and the ribcage. The officers had removed the remains from the scene and took them to the medical examiner's office without giving Detective Keppel, the man assigned to this case, an opportunity to examine them. The following day, Detective Keppel returned to the Issaquah Hillside Discovery Site at 5 a.m. <laughs> he was the first to arrive bright and early, 5 a.m., because he doesn't waste any time and he wanted to get this shit done. He says, It was just before dawn and the silence on the hillside was ominous. No birds were chirping, no animals were crunching the underbrush, and no insects were buzzing. It was desolate and lonely, as if all living things had abandoned the hillside, leaving nothing but the physical signs of death and decomposition. I was the first at the crime scene at 5 a.m., not expecting the rest of the searchers until 8. I wanted the solitude and privacy to look around by myself before I had to manage a teenaged crew of emergency search and rescue personnel. The young patrol officer who had been ordered to secure the crime scene overnight seemed to have been truly frightened during his lonely vigil and was relieved to see another human being, his thoughts having gone in and out of dreams, rendering him barely able to distinguish reality from nightmare. He described his sentry duty as something out of Edgar Allan Poe. He lurched at every sound, he said, and the hours had been full of them as animals scrambled across the hard ground following the scent of dead things. I didn't ask whether he fired his revolver. The acrid odor of burnt powder hanging heavy in the forest made it clear. So Dr. Keppel's having this moment in the woods, you know, trying to be there three hours before the rest of the group was going to be there to take the scene in, like taking his job super seriously. And he gets a like bzz, bzz, on his little pocket radio and he was instructed to find a landline, <laughs> to find a landline for an important update to the case. Remember 1974, no cell phones. His commanding officer explained that despite yesterday's um, press release where we told people that we definitely know without any sort of, you know, science or having anyone with a fucking degree 
look at the bones that it's not Denise. Um, whoopsie, the skull was positively identified by dental comparisons to be Denise Naslin's. Oh, whoopsie. Like, the fuck? Dr. Keppel said, my first thoughts were of Eleanor Rose, Denise's mother. What must she think of the King County Police Department's announcement of the previous day? The news release was just one example of how poorly we were prepared to handle a case of this magnitude and to deal with the feelings of grieving parents and living victims that accompanied it. Denise's mother said, I always wanted a daughter real bad. Way back years ago, I was afraid I might never have a little girl, but I had Denise. Long before Denise was born, I had a closet just full of little girl's clothing. I really, you know, wanted a daughter so bad. Her mother never touched the closet of Denise's bedroom full of her clothes. Outside on the street in front of the little house where Eleanor lived alone, Denise's car was left parked at the curb. Now and then, someone came to the door and knocked, asking if the car was for sale. Eleanor always told them, no, I'm just going to keep it for Denise. So Detective Keppel hangs with the phone. He's like, what the fuck, guys? Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is a fuck up. And he's like, all right, now I have to prepare for the arrival of the emergency search and rescue team. At this time, this team was a volunteer rescue organization whose members were trained using specific techniques to locate lost hikers and downed aircrafts. Dr. Keppel says, the most haunting statement I have ever heard, ESAR's 50 or so teenagers who were supervised by a small group of adults, had never participated in a police evidence search before. Of course not, Bob. They should be worried about acne and passing chem and maybe fucking not looking for skeletal remains for women who were serial killed in the woods. Like, (laughs) teenagers, teenagers. Okay. So he says, however, we believe that the techniques they use to find missing persons in the woods will be extremely useful in searching for bones on the Issaquah hillside. So these teenagers, I will never not say that enough. These teenagers begin the search by establishing X and Y coordinates using string lines to form quadrants. Within each quadrant, a hands and knees search was conducted. This method is similar to one an archaeologist might use in an archaeological dig. You know, they are looking for bones. So he says, the number of discoveries these 15 and 16-year-old teenagers made were alarming and gruesome. Within the span of two hours, they found hair near where two bodies were dumped. They found a leather sheath about two feet long, a screwdriver, blonde hair near an original dump area, a rib bone a jawbone, blonde hair along the animal trail, a bird's nest with blonde hair intertwined, and fecal material with small hand bones. Teenagers. He says, on and on it went, one discovery after another, day after day, for seven days. And Bob says, I'm calling it Bob now, we're old friends, we go back. Bob says, we literally unearth a graveyard. Typically, homicide investigators process a crime scene for evidence, not human body parts. I wonder what these teenagers were thinking and feeling with each new discovery. What would they they be like after a few days of finding hundreds of animal ravaged skeleton parts? (laughs) 
Did they wonder how bones wind up in coyote fecal material or how birds know to use human hair to weave their nests? Whatever their thoughts were, their willingness to kneel shoulder to shoulder, meticulously inspecting every inch of the hillside, biting stinging nettles and lifting every twig and leaf with the care of a surgeon was unbelievable. Not one word of complaint was uttered. No police officer that I knew would have searched with such dedication from dawn till dusk for seven days straight. I would always be thankful for their help on this tedious but all-important level of the investigation. Teenagers in the woods on hands and knees looking for fucking body parts. Like, how was your summer? Well, you want to know about how a bird will use human hair from a corpse to weave its nest? (laughs) Whoa, okay, I just went swimming. Like, Jesus Christ. In the end, these teenagers found numerous bones, clumps of hair, fingernails, and hairs found inside animal dung and fecal soil from three separate body decomposition sites. They also found a crowbar, shovel, screwdriver, female clothing unrelated to the three victims, and many animal bones. Over 400 items of evidence and bones from the remains of three women were recovered by 50 Teenager. <laughs> they did not find the skull of Janice Ott, but they did find a skull and jawbone belonging to a third unidentified victim whose full skeletal remains were also still missing. Dr. Keppel believed at first that these missing parts weren't found because maybe animals had taken them somewhere outside of their search perimeters, but because they had found so many remains above ground, they didn't think that the missing parts could have been buried. Dr. Keppel said, Our inexperience was telling, and it favored the killer. He says, ESAR techniques proved invaluable for us since we had never been faced with processing this type of outdoor crime scene before. We learned the importance of thoroughness and of animal behavior, the latter of which to help us find remains along their travel paths. The search really was revolutionary and would be a model for crime scene processing forever. So literally, Dr. Keppel did that. That's what this fucking Ted Bundy case did. Like, that's why I'm making this podcast because I'm like, I can't be the only one who knows all this. This is crazy. 50 teenagers. As Dr. Keppel went up and down the hillside photographing, measuring, and packaging evidence and bones, he hopefully got a fucking raise for doing 20 jobs at once. He observed that the area had been stripped of all of the usual forensic evidence that one might find from, I don't know, a crime scene that contained the skeletal remains of three bodies. In the history of the King County homicide investigation, no murder case had ever had a crime scene with so little evidence as this one. Because remember, Ted Bundy worked in an area where he was like studying cases and shit to be like, oh, this is what they look for. Dr. Kappel literally says, at this stage, it was all guesswork since no one had ever had to solve such a series of crimes. The more we thought about the dump site, the more it seemed that these murders were premeditated with escape routes and victim disposal already planned out. For example, the distance from where the victims were last seen to the dump site indicated that the offender was not overly concerned about traveling some distance with a victim in his car. He was confident that he could elude police and dispose of the body between the time when the victim was reported missing and when the official search began. The fact that we found no clothing on the remains was evidence that the killer did not want his victims found with their own clothing, which might contain trace evidence that could be linked to him. He must therefore know how police collected evidence and developed theories of the crime from the remains at the crime scene. The killer probably saw for himself the results of predators scavenging human remains. 
Ooh, since one body was there for over a month before the other two were discarded. How many times had he visited the dump site to know the progress of the corpse's decay and the way wild animals scattered the remains? That's not all he was doing, Bob. He must have stepped over his first victim to leave the other two. I had concluded that he was rehearsing all of his options. The killer's modus operandi I felt was dynamic and he was willing to change it. The conditions of the crime scene were indicative not only of extensive pre-event planning, but also post-event planning and superb execution, leading to the conclusion that the offender previously had been successful at committing murder. This killer was more experienced at cold-blooded murder than any of us were at watching people like him. Somehow, I sensed he knew this if he could get away with it. However, my theory was not even mildly supported by most police personnel at the time. Most of the homicide behavioral theorists on the case, especially the hot dogs from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, expected that any day a crazy psycho would be found running down the street with a bloody knife in his mouth screaming mother. They did not go for the subtlety of the murderous methods that I envisioned. Over a decade later, Ted Bundy himself confessed to Dr. Keppel, and you can read about it in his book, The River Man, that those few bones of the identified remains belonged to missing college student Georgian Hawkins, the young woman who vanished on her walk back from her boyfriend's frat house when she was just a few feet away from her sorority house. To this day, the full skull of Georgian Hawkins has never been found. Our good friend Liz, <laughs> still Ted Bundy's ride or die at this point, says, In mid-September 1974, the bodies of the two young women who had disappeared from Lake Sammamish were found in the woods not far from the lake. According to the newspaper accounts, there were no clues and the police were still baffled. I told Ted about it, listening for some sort of reaction, but hearing none. The next time we talked, he asked me if any more bodies had been found. His bringing it up like that scared the hell out of me. Much later... Dr. Keppel discovered that on July 16th, almost two days after Ted Bundy abducted and killed Janice Ott and Denise Nasland, a Washington State Highway employee unknowingly drove along the road near where the bodies were found and pulled over to have lunch in his truck. Within seconds of stopping, he smelled something dead. He was apparently curious enough to uh, take a look. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that this was a white man because um. Getting out of his car to go look at something he thought was dead is high-key white people behavior. <laughs> okay. And he says he walked less than 30 feet and saw what he thought to be a dead deer. He got back in his truck and left. What he actually saw were the remains of either Janice Ott or Denise Nasland. So after this insane discovery on September 7th, brought to you by 50 teenagers combing a hillside on hands and knees, fighting stinging nettles and all sorts of shit to collect bones and clumps of hair and all sorts of crazy shit. Captain Nick Mackey of the King County Police Department admitted to the press, the worst we feared is true. Well, yeah, nigga, that, <laughs> yes. The avenues of Salt Lake City were much like Seattle's University District and Ted Bundy felt right at home. 
He quickly made friends with several neighbors, and the landlord gave Ted a discount on rent for mowing the lawn, collecting rent checks, and carrying the garbage out to the dump truck. One day, as Ted was cutting the lawn, a man named Fred Burke introduced himself and asked Ted for help moving his furniture into his new apartment next door. Ted Bundy quickly became friends with Fred and his girlfriend Carol, who often invited him over for dinner. Fred did wonder how, for a law student, Ted Bundy didn't study much. In fact, Fred could never recall actually seeing Ted open a book at any point during the fall of 1974. Fred surmised it must be due to the erratic hours that Ted kept, home during the day and out at night. For someone as compulsively neat and orderly as Ted, Fred thought he sure had an irregular schedule, literally a fucking vampire, a goddamn demon. (laughs) Fred and Carol soon got married in early 1975 Guess who was the best man? (laughs) Ted Bundy. (laughs) Apparently, he looks genuinely proud as he handed the ring to Fred during the ceremony. I can't even say it. (laughs) I wish I could see this like wedding video or these photos. Like, can you imagine fucking Ted Bundy in the middle of a goddamn murder spree, a full ass serial killing? pedophile motherfucker is your best man. Oh my God. Okay. Anyway, so this is fun. A woman named Wanda Hancock, which I'm pretty sure is a pseudonym, lived in the apartment below Ted Bundy and yep, you guessed it, fell for his fuckboy bullshit. They quickly became good friends and occasionally dated. Ted Bundy, as the vampire he was, glommed onto Wanda's friend circle and soon found himself a regular in her apartment smoking pot and like sharing stories and like shooting the shit. Regarding Ted's Volkswagen, Wanda complained on numerous occasions about the way the front passenger seat slid back and forth freely. Mm-hmm. Ted Bundy told Dr. Carlisle, the man who conducted the 1976 psychological assessment, please go read this book, of his time in Utah, he said... I had a difficult time adjusting to Salt Lake. Some of it was meeting new people. I began missing classes, and by the middle of October, I had stopped going altogether. Which, Ted Bundy's lying. Like, you obviously had friends. You had a fucking girlfriend. Like, T. So Dr. Carlar asked, well, why do you think that was? And Ted Bundy replied, I don't know why. I had invested money in savings to come down. I don't know what it was. I know what it was, nigga. You were killing people. You were a goddamn murderer, you lying piece of human fecal matter. So Dr. Carlisle asks, what did you do if you weren't going to your classes? And Ted Bundy, quick with the responses, said, oh, I made bookshelf. <laughs> I made bookshelf. <laughs> I made- okay. I made bookshelves and did some reading. <laughs> okay. I made bookshelves and did some reading and the days flashed by. Oh my God, <laughs> what a delusional bitch. I call, <laughs> why didn't you go to law school? Cause I made bookshelves, what the fuck? He says, I called Liz three or four times a week. The phone bill was high. So we talked about whether or not I should even continue calling her. You know, she was the one paying for that phone bill too. Like, you know, full tea, he wasn't shelling out any money for that. So, Dr. Carlisle says, now he was in Salt Lake, he was enrolled in law school, but he couldn't bring himself to go to classes. He was still planning something with Liz, but she wasn't with him, so he couldn't go to her apartment when he needed to be with someone. Things weren't going well for Ted. Oh my God. 
So this is scary, guys. When Ted applied for the University of Utah Law School, in his letter of reapplication, written during the middle of his fucking killing spree, he stated, and I shit you fucking not, and I quote, my lifestyle requires that I obtain knowledge of the law and the ability to practice legal skills. I intend to be my own man. It's that simple. The important factor, however, is that law fulfills a functional need which my daily routine has forced me to recognize. I apply to law school because this institution will give me the tools to become a more effective actor in the social role I have defined for myself. Oh my God. Like, oh my fucking God. On the evening of October 2nd, 1974, 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox vanished from Holiday, Utah, a small city just outside of Salt Lake City. Nancy was a cheerleader with blonde hair parted in the middle. Initially, Nancy was labeled by authorities as a runaway because she had recently argued with her parents, so that equates I'm running away forever. She had apparently last been reported seen riding in a yellow Volkswagen bug. No description was offered for the man driving the Volkswagen. And now Ted Bundy, in his weird third person, separate blah, 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 like confessions in the book, The Only Living Witness by Stephen Mashad and Hugh Ainsworth, he explains how he abducted and killed this girl and it's not great. So trigger warning for gratuitous violence, sexual assault. I apologize in advance. Feel free to skip ahead, but I'm going to read you his confession. Also, it's not me saying, uh, it's Ted Bundy saying, uh, a lot because he's a stupid bitch. So Ted Bundy says, so he, uh, began to just go out driving around the suburbs, uh, and the city of, that he was living in. And one particular evening, he's driving down this fairly dark street and saw a girl walking along the street. Okay. Because the area was dark and she was alone. He decided to select her as the victim for this intended act of sexual assault. He parked his car down the street and, uh, uh, then ran up behind the girl. Just as he came up on her, they were at a place where there was an, an orchard and a number of trees or something. As he came up behind her, she heard him. She turned around and he brandished a knife and grabbed her by the arm and told her to do what he wanted her to do, you know, to follow him. He pushed her off the sidewalk into this dark wooded area and uh, told her to submit and do what he wanted her to do. She began to argue with him. And he kept telling her to be quiet. So author Stephen Machat writes, Ted was keeping his head bowed and turned slightly. I could see his jaw clench and relax, clench and relax, but he kept on with his story. Ted Bundy continued. Then he began to try to remove her clothes and she would uh, continue to struggle in a feeble manner and also voice verbally her objections to what was going on. And then uh, the significance noun is his intent with the victim was not to harm her. He thought this was going to be a significant departure, perhaps even a way of deconditioning himself to climb down that ladder or uh, I can't think of a good word, de de-escalate this level of violence to the point where there would be no violence at all. So pause. Ted Bundy is trying to say that rape is not violence. I know this is a audio medium, but if you could see my fucking face right now, this piece of shit. So he's like, if I don't murder her, I'm being good. If I could take some shears to his dick, I swear to fucking God. Anyway, he continues with this bullshit ass motherfucker. But he found himself with this girl who was struggling and screaming, uh, not screaming, 
but let's just say that basically arguing with him. There were houses in the vicinity. He was concerned that somebody might hear. At this point, he was in a state of not just agitation, of something more in the order of panic. He was fearing that she would arouse somebody in the vicinity, so not thinking clearly, but still not intending to harm her. Let's say he placed his hands on her throat just to throttle her into unconsciousness so that she wouldn't scream anymore. She stopped struggling and it appeared that she was unconscious, but not in his opinion to the point where he had killed her. Then let's say he removed her clothes and raped her and put his own clothes back on. At about that point, he began to notice that the girl wasn't moving. It appeared, although he wasn't certain, that he had done what he promised himself he wouldn't do, and he had done it almost really inadvertently. So he took the girl by one of her arms and pulled her over to a darkened corner of this little orchard and then in a fit of panic fled the scene. Stephen Michaud writes, Ted kept his jaw working, but the rest of his body was rigid, frozen at an odd cant, cradling the tape recorder. He seemed to have lost awareness of me. Ted Bunny continues, He got back into his car and drove back to his house, still not knowing if the girl was alive or dead. But once he returned to the house, upon reflection, he began to wonder. He didn't know if he left anything at the crime scene. So he decided to return to the scene and if the body was there to recover it and take it somewhere else, it wouldn't be found. But he faced two problems in returning to the scene. First, prior to the incident, he was in a state of intoxication and he didn't know the area that well. So he couldn't remember exactly where it was he had to return. But let's say after a considerable period driving around in the general vicinity, uh, he was able to locate that area. He parked his car at the curb of this small orchard and walked into it and saw that in fact, the body was still in the same position he left it. So it was clear that the girl was dead. So he carried the body to his car and put it in and covered it. Then he returned to the general area with a flashlight and scoured it to pick up everything that he may have left there, her clothing, etc. He placed that in the car and returned to his apartment. Author Kevin Sullivan calls bullshit when he writes, Bundy would like us to believe that he was truly unaware he committed yet another murder. Viewing the facts, however, one must believe otherwise. Since he did admit to killing Nancy Wilcox that night, and if it happened exactly the way he said it did, that he strangled her before removing her clothing and having intercourse with her, having undressed this young woman at this time, he would have been met with the unmistakable smell of defecation and urine once the body ceased its function. Because guys, that's what happens. Think about when people like fucking gallows and shit, when people like get their neck snapped, they like pee and poop themselves. So yeah. To this day, the body of Nancy Wilcox has never been located. So, on Friday, October 18th, 1974, 17-year-old Melissa Smith, daughter of Midvale's police chief, Lewis Smith, prepared to attend a slumber party. Melissa was 5'3", had hazel eyes, and wore her long, light brown hair parted in the middle. Sometime after 10 p.m. that evening, she became Ted Bundy's second known Utah victim. So that evening, Melissa, she planned to leave for her sleepover like early in the evening. But when she called her friend's house, no one answered. And apparently the slumber party was canceled. But unfortunately, no one remembered to call Melissa and let her know. So Melissa was like, all right. And she was still at home when another friend called her really upset over her recent breakup with her boyfriend. Her friend was working at a pizza parlor nearby. And Melissa was like, okay, well, my evening just cleared up. I'll walk over and talk to you and, you know, cheer you up. She's a good friend. So Melissa walked to the pizza parlor and she arrived safely. 
Around 9 p.m., Melissa called home to tell her sister Jolene, Jolene, Jolene. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> Can you, like, I can't not sing that, but sorry, back. Uh, she told her sister Jolene that she would be back home around 10 p.m. This was the last contact Melissa would have with her family. Kevin Sullivan writes, her route home would have been the same, although there is the possibility she intended to catch a ride part of the way. At least one witness said he saw Melissa hitchhiking around the time she would have been heading home. If this is true, Ted Bundy would have been more than happy to offer her a ride. However, if she did walk home, she would have had to cross or go by over the grounds of a middle school where there were gaps in the lighting and it would be near here that a witness standing out in her front yard would hear a scream around 10.15 p.m. If Ted Bundy did abduct Melissa during that walk home, it may well have started in the pizza restaurant with Ted Bundy eyeing her from another booth. Later, after Bundy had been identified in the press, a witness came forward who told police that the person he believed to be Ted Bundy sat in the booth just behind Melissa and exited almost immediately after she left the restaurant. Although it has never been firmly established that Ted Bundy was in the pizza place that night, it's very likely that he was. So at this point, it's super late and Melissa's parents are out looking for her, especially like her dad is the fucking chief of police of their town. So he's like, I'm going to go look for my kid, you know, especially since he took like, she is the daughter of a police chief. Like she checks in, she told, calls her sister and was like, I'll be home in an hour. She wasn't home. So they're like, let's get in the car and go look for her. So they're driving up and down the strip. They don't find her. They get back home around two in the morning. And the second they walked in the door, the phone rang. And Melissa's mom, Joanne, grabbed the phone and she heard only silence and then some indistinguishable noises in the background. And she was like, okay, was someone trying to call? Was it Melissa? Was she trying to reach them? Was it a joke? And so she's like, Melissa, Melissa, is this you? No one answers. And then an hour later, she's in bed. She shoots up out of the bed and begins to pace around her house. And she's shivering, even though it's like super warm in the house. And she told investigators, Call it mother's intuition or whatever you want, but I knew Melissa was dead. <sighs> Nine days later, on October 27th, 1974, deer hunters came across the body of a young white female on a brush-covered hillside in Summit County, Utah. She was nude except for a beaded necklace and a blue sock wrapped tightly around her neck. Trigger warning. Anne Rule and The Stranger Besides Me writes, Pathologist Sergey Moore performed the autopsy. He discovered that she had been beaten savagely, possibly with a crowbar about the head. Melissa has sustained deep fractures on the left side and back of her head and massive subdural hemorrhages. Her body was covered with bruises, which had occurred prior to death. She had also been strangled by ligature. Someone had tightened her own dark blue stocking around her neck so tightly that her hyoid bone was fractured. She had been raped and sodomized. A quantity of dirt and twigs were found inside of her vagina. <sighs> Authorities discovered that she had lost a large amount of blood. Blood that was not around her body. They concluded that she had bled heavily and possibly died elsewhere. The medical examiner concluded that from the condition of her body, that Melissa had remained alive for as long as a week Following her disappearance, authorities theorized that judging from the lack of ligature marks on her wrists and ankles, when Melissa was abducted, 
she was kept alive for probably a week in an unconscious state. The detective was waiting at the hospital morgue door when her parents arrived. You don't want to see her, he said to her mother. Melissa's father, Lewis Smith, again, the chief of Midvale Police for over 20 years, decided to go in. And for him, this was the most difficult task of his life, obviously. He walked into the room, looked at the body. However, Melissa's body was so badly swollen that he wasn't sure if it was even her. It was finally confirmed through dental records that the body found on the hillside was in fact that of Melissa Smith's. Despite the obvious trauma Melissa had experienced, up into including her being held alive, possibly in a coma for up to a fucking week after her abduction, her hair had been washed, her nails had been painted, her eye makeup reapplied, and her dead body looked unusually clean. According to Jolene Smith, the makeup on her sister's body did not belong to Melissa. Neither did the paint covering her nails. So Ted Bundy fucking washed her hair, painted her nails, did her eye makeup like... <laughs> so, of course, we gotta check in with Liz. <laughs> Let's see how she's doing with all of this. Okay, so the following is an excerpt from her book, The Phantom Prince. <laughs> she says, in late October, I picked Angie up at the airport as she was returning from a trip to Utah. She seemed upset, but she waited until we were alone in the car to tell me what was wrong. I don't want to scare you, she said, but it's happening in Utah right now. I stared at her. I knew exactly what she meant. When my mom was driving me to the airport, she said, I heard it on the radio. Deer hunters found the body of the daughter of the Midvale police chief. She'd been missing, just like the girls up here. Tomorrow morning, I would have to call the police. I had fixed a nice dinner for Angie, but neither of us could eat. I drank the bottle of wine I'd bought and was awake most of the night. I visualized Ted and me married. Sorry, Liz, why? After you heard about more missing women murdered, why would you visualize about you two... <sighs> says he would be campaigning to be governor when it would be revealed that his devoted wife had gone to the police in 1974 claiming he was a murderer. The next morning, I waited until everyone else in my department had gone on break and then I called the King County Police. Major crimes, Hergesmeyer, Hergschmeyer, Hergschmeyer, Schmeyer, sorry to this ma'am for butchering your name. I'd like to talk to someone who knows about the missing woman cases. I was shaking and my voice was high and strained. I can help you, he said. Even though I had rehearsed this a hundred times during the night, I didn't know how to begin. I'm scared that a friend of mine is involved. I know I'm wrong, but there are some coincidences. My friend moved away and the crime stopped. And now where he lives, the same kind of thing is happening. I'm sorry, Liz. <laughs> Most of the time, I think I'm crazy, but then I get scared that I'm right. Let's start at the beginning. What's your friend's name? I paused. I've been at this point before. I really don't want to say. I know you can't do much without a name, but it's just, I know I'm probably wrong. Then bitch, I'm sorry, why are you bother calling? Like, they literally cannot do anything 
unless you give them a fucking name. Like, you're just wasting this man's time. There's a serial killer running around and you're like, call a therapist if this is what you want to do. Like, this is some wild shit. So he says, I understand it makes my job harder, but not impossible. What are the coincidences that you're worried about? I told him about the experience I had when I called the Seattle police. My friend drives a Volkswagen, but it's not metallic. Sometimes he speaks in a formal way that could be mistaken for an accent. And his first name is Ted. There's way more coincidences, Liz. He has a fucking sling and crutches and all the other shit, but okay. The detective's reaction was milder than I expected. Mama, he was playing it cool. He wanted to know why I had called the Seattle police. I told him about seeing the crutches in my friend's room. He wanted to know what was the significance about that. I was amazed. Didn't he know that a man on crutches had been connected with the Georgian Hawkins case? This is also called him trying to see what she knows, but okay. Then you've been worried for a long time, he says. Oh yes, it's been so awful. I know I'm wrong, but I can't stop thinking about it. He pressed me for more. Why was I calling him today? I told him what Angie had heard on the radio and that my friend had moved to Salt Lake City in September. What is your relationship with your friend, he asked. Well, we've gone together for five years. I said, oh my God, Jesus Christ, I forgot. Five years. We've gone together for five years, I said. I was getting worried about people coming back to the office. I told him I couldn't talk much longer. Could you call Salt Lake City and find out what's going on there? Maybe it isn't similar at all. Maybe they've already made an arrest today. I'll do that. What's your phone number and I'll call you back. No, I'll call you back, I said. I'll, I was getting panicky. Well, what's your name? I need to know who's calling me back. I want to tell you, you're not the first girlfriend who's called about her boyfriend. They all felt as bad about it as you do. But after we checked the guys out, the women were tremendously relieved. I told him my name was Liz. Okay, Liz, you're for sure going to call me back, right? It's important that you call back. Give me an hour. My name is Randy Hergschmeyer. Promise me that you'll call back in an hour. Feeling like I was six years old, I solemnly promised to call him back in an hour. I just had time to call Angie before people drifted back in the office. She was leaving in a few days for Europe. I called Hergschmeyer back in two hours. I thought you changed your mind, he said. I got real busy here, I lied. Well, I called Salt Lake City, he said, and told me only what Angie had heard on the radio about the body being found. Let's talk about your friends some more, he said. I said I would call him back at lunchtime. She's doing this at work, guys. <laughs> I went looking for the most out-of-the-way payphone I could find. It was by itself on the mezzanine outside a large auditorium. I called Hergschmeyer back. He told me that right after the Lake Sammamish disappearances, the police had done a massive study of VW owners named Ted. There are more of them than you might think, he said. What else made you worry about your friend? I told him about Ted going to Lake Sammamish the weekend of July 7th. I go there myself a lot, he said. I've never been there, I answered, and I don't think Ted had gone there before either. But that wasn't enough to make you worry, was it? Is your boyfriend violent? What really started you going on this thing? I told him about the composite picture and my first anonymous call to the Ted hotline. It was hard for me to put the bits and pieces together in any way that would sound sensible. I said that two of the earlier disappearances happened in my own neighborhood in the university district. Where did your boyfriend live? When I told him it was the U district, he quickly asked me if my friend's name, Ted, was short for Edward. No, it's short for Theodore, I said. You don't mean I could hear him shuffling papers. Theodore R. Bundy. I was stunned. 
How, how did you know that? We checked him out last summer when his name was called into the task force. By who? A university professor. I was at once relieved that I'd been worrying for nothing and indignant that there would be anyone else to suspect my Ted of these horrible crimes. The f- it's the flip-flopping for me. I'm sorry, Mama. Shouldn't this be more concerning that other people think your man's is a fucking serial killer? You're literally on the phone with the cops doing the thing you're being a hypocrite about. Like, make it make fucking sense. I still think we should get together, Hergschmeyer said. Would you come down here to talk to me? No, I was emphatic. Would you meet me somewhere in the U District, say Herfie's? He went on naming a popular hamburger place. I hesitated. You sound like you've been pretty upset by your worries. Discussing them with me could put an end to them once and for all. I agreed to meet him in the Herfie's parking lot. We had gone through a long thing on the phone about how we would recognize each other, but I spotted him immediately that evening because he looked exactly like a detective sitting in a detective's unmarked car waiting for someone. He had a stack of papers on the seat with an enlargement of Ted's driver's license photo on top. We sat in Hergschmeyer's car and I asked him about the police checking out Ted earlier. I felt somehow tricked. Mama, how? He picked up Ted's picture and said, we got it last summer. We went back over everything, height, weight, hair color, the accent, the VW, the expensive looking tennis clothes, whether Ted had a sailboat. I told him I had been with Ted the morning and evening of July 14th. He told me that when they checked Ted out, they found out he had never been in trouble with the law and seemed clean in every other way. Everyone has a starting point. Everyone has a starting point. I hesitated and then I began. That's just it. There's a side to Ted that only I know. You see, he steals. Hergschmeyer kept looking at me as if I hadn't finished my sentence. I mean, he gets all dressed up in his fine clothes and then he shoplifts. He's taking everything from textbooks to a TV. Sometimes I think that Ted enjoys the con of stealing more than the stuff he stole. One of the few times I've ever seen him lose his temper was when I dropped over to his room and he had a new TV and stereo and a bunch of stuff I knew he couldn't afford. I was shocked and I told him he was nothing but a thief. He told me if I ever told anyone, he would break my fucking neck. And yet she still stayed with him. (laughs) Does he have a violent temper? Did he put his hands on you when he threatened you? Did he ever hit you? I was embarrassed, but I told Hergschmeyer about the only time Ted had hit me. It was early in our relationship and I was drunk. I couldn't remember what we were arguing about, but I kept telling him. But I kept telling Ted, go ahead and hit me. Go ahead. Finally, he had slapped me. Ironically, it had happened in this very same Herfie's parking lot. I just want to say I do have a pin on my jacket that says if he puts his fucking hands on you, cut them off. If you don't know how to use your hands properly, do you deserve to have hands? If you don't know how to use your dick properly, do you deserve to have a dick? I'm just saying, make these niggas lose their hands and dicks 2021. Like, you don't deserve to have them. Fuck you. Who's with Who's with me? <laughs> don't, don't, don't commit crimes. Don't commit crimes. But I mean, if you don't know how to use his hands, like... Look up Lorena. Her husband was raping her. She cut his dick off. So anyway, Hergschmeyer asked me if there was anything in Ted's background that would affect the way he felt about women. I told him that Ted was illegitimate and that he had been upset because his mom had never discussed it with him, but that he was still close to his mom and his brothers and sisters. Then looking straight into my eyes, Hergschmeyer said, what about your sex life? 
oh, we've had our ups and downs, so to speak. We've had a pretty good sex life up until last summer, I guess. Then Ted just lost all interest in sex. He was under a lot of pressure with his job and moving and all. And, and maybe he had another girlfriend. Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, he did have another girlfriend. It was Diane Edwards, who he started courting that summer. And then all the way up until uh, winter time, where he had that fake little proposal breakup and he started killing people. I know this is hard for you, but it's important, he said. How often? What positions? When? Where? I didn't even talk about these things with Angie, but I told myself that this guy was a police officer. He's heard it all before. I told him that in the fall of 1973, Ted had bought a copy of a book called The Joys of Sex to My House. We had lain in bed and read through it. Ted sheepishly asked me if we could try bondage. We'd had sex that way maybe three times, but I didn't like it, so we stopped. I tried to convince Hergschmeyer that there was nothing unnatural about the way we made love. Bitch, he fucks heads. Had we had anal sex? No, never. I couldn't think of anything less appealing. Hergschmeyer pulled out a piece of paper and asked me to look at it. It was a psychological profile, a list of characteristics that a psychiatrist thought the killer could possess. I read down the list. Ted didn't come even remotely close to fitting it. When I came to the line that said the killer probably hated animals and had a history of cruelty to them, I thought about all the strays Ted had brought to my house, the hamsters, the guinea pigs, and the kittens he had given to Molly. Hergschmeyer told me flatly that Ted didn't look like a suspect. He asked me if I would give him some recent pictures of Ted, so as a final check, he could show them to some witnesses from Lake Sammamish. I hesitated. Pictures would be concrete proof that I had called the police. This is her third time calling the police and she's literally meeting him in person. Like, enough of this bullshit. Commit or don't. I thought of my waking dream the night before about Ted's campaign for governor. I tried to explain how I felt about giving him the pictures. He seemed to be getting annoyed with my ambivalence. No shit, Liz. It was getting late. He probably wanted to get home. No, he's working on a fucking murder investigation and you're wasting his fucking time. Help him or don't. I told him finally, yes, he could have the pictures. As he started his car, he turned to me and said, now you've told me absolutely everything that's been bothering you, right? I bit my lip. I didn't know if I should bring up one last thing. He persuaded me if I wanted to be totally done with this, I would have to be 100% honest with him. So I told him about the plaster of Paris I had found in Ted's desk drawer several years ago and Ted's comment that you never could tell when you break your leg. Yeah, you should tell him everything. Sounds like a fucking good idea. Otherwise, what is the point? Wasting everyone's time. This is when people complain about wasting taxpayers' dollars. This is the shit. We drove the six blocks from Herfie's to my place in silence. We started flipping through the photo albums. He told me he thought Molly was a real cute kid and asked me how she got along with Ted. Ugh. I told him how lucky I felt that she and Ted cared so much for each other. The albums were proof. A three-year-old riding on the shoulders of Ted. A five-year-old held up on her new bike. An eight-year-old held upside down by him. I wanted to tell Hergschmeyer about all the trips, the dinners, everything we shared, but I knew he didn't care. He picked up three snapshots and then pulled out a report form. His manner was businesslike. Spell your name. Give me your address. How old are you? I was tired. Bitch, you're tired. He's working. Okay. I was, <laughs> I was tired. It seemed to take him forever to write down things we talked about at Herfie's. At last, he was ready to go. I'll let you know what the witnesses say as soon as I showed them the pictures, he said on his door. I called Angie and we talked into the night. I felt guilty and I felt relieved. She was leaving the next day for Europe and was upset about leaving me with so many worries. But she gave me an address in Paris. <laughs> Angie's like, do this. 
<laughs> as if she could do anything from halfway around the world. Ted called several times a week. It was easy for me not to think of having gone to the police when I was talking with him. He was just Ted, nothing else. It was after I hung up that I was consumed by guilt and hoped to God he never found out. I had expected to hear from Hergschmeyer right away. When almost a week went by without no word, I called him again from the same payphone in the mezzanine. Hi, this is Liz. Have you shown those pictures to the Lake Sammamish witnesses yet? What pictures, he asked. Those pictures of Ted Bundy. Who is this again, he asked, sounding irritated. This is Liz Kendall. I talked to you last week in the Herfie's parking lot. I had told this man the most intimate details of my life. He couldn't remember who I was. He's busy. He's busy. He's busy. He has over 200 people calling a day. He's fucking busy. I gave you three snapshots and you were going to show them to the witnesses from Lake Sammamish. Oh yeah, I haven't had a chance to show them to the most reliable witnesses. Like I told you, I'll call you when I do. More days went by without a word from Hergschmeyer. I decided to call him again. He literally said, I will call you when I get to it. In my imagination, I could hear him say things like, don't call here anymore, or you're the one who ought to be locked up, lady. You're the one with the problem. As it turned out, Hergschmeyer was on vacation. I think that's just what they told her because she kept calling him, but okay. One day, I called a woman I barely knew and asked her if she would join me at the afternoon break. I was so lonely. As we got our coffee, she suggested we join her boyfriend and his friends from the prosthetics and orthos lab in the hospital. On the way back to our offices, she said to me, you noticed that good looking guy named Jim? The reason I didn't use his last name when I introduced you is that he's Jim Ott. His wife, Jan, was murdered out by Lake Sammamish. A terrible chill swept over me. I knew who had murdered his wife and yet you still talk to him. I knew who had murdered his wife. Oh my God, was I responsible? I had done the only thing I knew to do. I had gone to the police. It was out of my hands now. Weeks later, I remembered that my ski rack was still on Ted's car on July 14th. Was that what happened to Janice Ott's bicycle? Yes. Finally, Hergschmeyer called me. He had shown the pictures to his best witness. When she came to the one of Ted, she pulled it out of the stack and balanced it on her knee. When she was finished, she took Ted's picture and put it back in the stack. The man was too old, she explained. That's hardly a positive ID, Hergschmeyer said. Well, what does that mean? I don't know what it means to you, he said, but it means to me I'm going to put Ted Bundy in my done it twice file and file him away. Oh, pew, 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 pew. Oh, <laughs> we did it. That was a rough one. Thank you so much for listening, and I thoroughly appreciate your continued support. Liz is still going through it, and for a while she doesn't get it together. Um, yeah, so just buckle up. It only gets worse. Ted Bunny's a ginormous turd monster. Thank you so much for listening, and please remember to rate and review on the iTunes Review Store. Subscribe, share with your friends. This podcast is available on all the platforms, wherever you listen, Spotify, Google Play, Apple iTunes, all that jazz. For photos of the episode, you can view them on Instagram. The podcast is at True Crime Aficionados. All of my sources will be listed in the show notes. As always, please stay tuned for some delicious purrs from my kitten, Mimi who is wonderful. And also, if you want some non-true crime content, you could find me on TikTok at Misha Imond. And you can shoot me an email at truecrimeaficionados at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, keep your head on the swivel. Bye.